Welcome to Geezers and Gurus on HVAC, hosted by Anchor. They've helped you set up this podcast and have made it very convenient and very easy to do one of your own if you need to. Uh, look up anchor.com. Let's get started. Hi, my name is Carl Darge, and this is my podcast, and this is going to be part of a series. So when you see it up there as Sherlock Service, you know it's going to be on service, and uh, the way we look at things is the same way we Sherlock Holmes would. My Sherlock Holmes. The master detective Sherlock Holmes fascinated me when I was a little kid, and things his his observation skills and his deductive reasoning was just amazing. I saw all the Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce movies, and I know as shocking as it may be, but the movies were not first. What was first is the radio programs where they used to have the same two guys, Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, on the radio and a detective series of Sherlock Holmes. That's right, I'm a little older than most of you guys, so I remember that. And I actually have some copies of them from the old-time radio uh, um, .com that you can get these podcasts. I mean, podcasts. <laughs> podcasts are new work, just old-time radio programs. They're very good. But the deductive reasoning and what you're doing and the observation, it is no different than what you're doing in a service call. And when you miss out a key part, that's usually when you turn into a parts replacer until it works guy. That's not the way service should work. Your customers don't deserve that. And you need to know how to approach these things and so that you can do like Sherlock. And his idea was is... You have a problem. You have an issue. So then you look at everything and you start a process of elimination. As that process goes along and you get down to the end, whatever is left is usually the problem. And we'll go into that in, in pretty good detail here. So, let's say you get a telephone call comes in and, gee, we have uh, a no-heat call from a lady. Okay, uh, what kind of uh, equipment do you have? If she's not a customer, you need to know these things. And she'll say, well, it's either boiler or forced air. And at this particular time, we're just going to go into the forced air. So that gives you an idea. Then you say to her, what's going on? What's happening? What, what, when you turn on the thermostat, what's going on? A lot of possibilities in what she's going to give you in her answer. But most of the time, she'll kind of say, well, you know... I can hear the furnace come on, and I can hear a motor start, and it runs for a while, and then the blower comes on, and we have no heat. And it's been doing this for a while. It would come on sometimes and not come on, and right now it's not coming on at all. Do you know how old this furnace is? When was it installed? Oh, yeah, we had it installed about five years ago. Well, guess what, folks? That's probably ten years, and that's the truth from all of the ones that I've ever been on. So, that is between 5 and 10 years is the first time usually on average that a heating unit will need service and parts replacement. That is because there is no parts made in America anymore today, very, very few. And uh, they're all made in Mexico or China or some other place where they just make junk. But I'm going to start with an old-fashioned type situation here to start with this is standing pilots. 
we don't have standing pilots anymore. Standing pilot, uh, you might get them on a hot water tank, and they were making boilers up until a few years ago with standing pilots. I hope all that's gone. And that's a different industry. That's the water industry, and I'll talk about that in a future podcast. But the uh, let's t- talk about pilots, and you get a call, and they say, I tried to light the pilot three or four times, and it just won't stay lit, and uh, so I got no heat. That's great. You already know the problem. The issue is probably a bad thermocouple. That's what you're thinking. And in my 60 years, I've replaced a lot of thermocouples, even the 48-inch long pen basso extra heavy-duty ones on commercial boilers. I've used, I've put in all kinds of them and with all kinds of different safety devices and what have you. Now, there's sometimes the pilot can create a perfect storm. And I'm going to explain this to you. Small townhouse with two burner hot water boiler in the basement and a couple that was in their 60s. Uh, the call goes out to the uh, condo office. Pilot keeps going out. Okay, so the condo office calls a provider, whoever that is, whether he's an in-house guy or somebody from outside. I don't know who it was. And he goes out there and he takes a look. And sure enough, the pilot's yellow, not quite hitting the thermocouple. Thermocouple's old. This stuff is uh, was put in in the 70s, so the thermocouple could be 10, 15 years old. Who knows? The gas valve was previously changed out maybe a year or so ago. And uh, so then the service call, easy call for the guy, comes out there, and there you go. Well, yellow lazy pilot, flame not hitting thermocouple. Okay, we take that pilot out of there, we clean it all up, we, uh, by we got it out, we're going to put in a new thermocouple, and we're going to put it all back in, and we're going to turn it back on. Now, it's fixed. Uh, that was uh, the way it went, so you're going to light the pilot, and turn on the heat, the burner comes on, and a nice blue, even flame, right across the uh, main burners, it was just a textbook looking thing. The tech leaves... And two people are dead. So what happened? Well, we had, uh, this is back in cold weather. We just happened to have a polar vortex visit us from Canada at that time, too. There were old smoke detectors on each floor, three in all. Uh, they were supposed to have been replaced with a combination of smoke and seal detectors, but never were. He, the husband, was found... In the open basement, it's not walled off or anything, it's just open with a nice stairway going up to the main floor, in a chair near the boiler. She was in the second floor master bedroom in bed. Both of them had died from carbon monoxide poisoning. On the first site visit that uh, took place, uh, in less than 10 minutes for me to find out what the problem was and what killed the two people by carbon monoxide poisoning. That's because I have so much experience. Now, you can't just say, write it all down, say this is what happened. No, because there's always a group of investigators. People are being sued, so other people are being representative, and, and the other investigators show up, and we work on the job as a team. This is one of the times that I really love my iPhone. 
Everything I do is on my iPhone, my iPad, or my Apple computer. I got to say that is the greatest thing ever came up with, anybody ever came up with. It beats everything out there, and uh, it's so compatible with things. So, let's, why do I say I love my iPhone? Because, let's go back to the Sherlock Holmes observation. I was observing the boiler. The boiler had soot marks on it here and there. Not a lot, not like it was overloaded or something else, but it tells me something. And it tells me that th there's an improper burn going on at some point in time. So I took a look at the burner vestibule, just like uh, I said the other guy did. I looked at it. The burners were clean. They hadn't been cleaned in a while. And there was still dust and dirt and stuff down there that was... They had not been removed and vacuumed and everything because underneath them there's still that telltale that hasn't been removed in years. But with my iPhone, turn it on, camera, put on a little light and put it in there and take some pictures of the bottom side of the heat exchanger. You have two burners, so that means you have three clamshells. And what I found just above the pilot the underside of this three-section border, soot. It kind of looks like black fluffy clouds that block the, the front half of the heat exchanger is where it was, where the flue gases should rise up and the heat uh, transfers to water and then goes out through the chimney. That wasn't happening. Most of it was coming out past the uh, front burner plate and rolling up in between the cabinet and then out of the boiler, actually, right near where the flue was on the top. There's a little hole in the top of the case, casing on the uh, uh, boiler. And right around that ring, we measured 3,500 parts per million CO coming out of that. Nothing out of the front uh, was actually coming out. It took, it, just the way the, the boiler was, it didn't come out the front. It came up and rose through on the outside. And now a Holmes thought. How long did it take? How many years did that pilot burn yellow, both summer and winter? And no one noticed that service call was done. The pilot was cleaned, the thermocouple replaced, but nobody took a real cloak. One of the problems that arisen on this thing and probably the reason why they died is because carbon monoxide builds and we had a polar vortex which meant that we had this huge cold mass coming down from Canada we were sub-zero at nights and, and for three or four nights and uh, the boiler was running full tilt boogie even at that time flue gases were going up the chimney through the diverter from the case and there it is now what happened the, it was running that high but you see with the heat exchanger partially plugged the water temperature coming out of that boiler wasn't as hot as it should have been but if you went over to the boiler and put your hands near it you would feel all of this heat saying well this thing is working if you look down into the burners you see that the flame is on and well it's working but that was deceptive because nobody looked up inside to see that only part of the flue gases was going up in the backside of it and was heating the water. When we ran this thing on a, a test a couple weeks later, we could not get the water temperature up high enough to actually heat the house. 
Thus the reason why the homeowner's husband was downstairs near the boiler trying to figure out what was going on and was just sitting there watching it and couldn't figure out why it wasn't heating the house. He probably put in a second call office where I'm telling him, gee, maybe the uh, I got an issue going on here because uh, it's not heating the house. And I'm sure somebody stopped by and said, no, it seems to be working just fine, sir, and uh, you just have to give it time. It's just that cold weather out there. Yeah. All right. So what does that mean? It means that because the service tech didn't take the extra time, didn't look at what was going on, two people died. The signs were there. The water temperature should have told the technician that there was something wrong. Would you have checked further? Well, you're on your way to the service call and you pull up on the job and you're greeted by the customer. First thing you need to do, and you, everybody should know this, you need to check the thermostat. If it's the digital stat and the uh, and the uh, thing is blank, then obviously you know you got batteries. But we know that it was working. She said the furnace came on. So, But you just want to make sure that the stat is set in the correct position, that it's calling for heat, that the heat is... Uh, uh, Temperature in the house is lower than the temperature that it's set for and all that stuff. Okay, so now you go downstairs and you leave the power on. And you do that for a reason. You leave the power on to see if there is idiot lights on this piece of equipment. Uh, so down in the blower door, you should have a little window or something where you can see the lights and, and observe that. And they'll give you a code, whether they're yellow, green, red. They all have different types of systems, but they'll have a code there of what the flashings and what the code uh, colors mean. And that that is a very good way of starting it right there. It gives you a real good place to look. There were furnaces made before all of the trouble lights came on. They had to do that uh, because things got complicated. Without the trouble lights, you have to check each component. So here we go. Uh, the old carriers used to have a circuit board on the 80 percenters up by the Venter motor, so don't forget that. This is where you need to connect your meter. You need to put one lead on a common. It could come off the gas valve or could come off the circuit board or wherever you can find a common for 24 volt. And then the next lead is going to tell you, you're going to start tracing it through to see what happens. And you turn the switch off and turn it back on and recycle the unit. If you have a carrier product, Bryant carrier, but you will have any time that the furnace calls for heat, after the switch is brought back on, for example, you turn it off, the thermostat's still calling, so it's on a call for heat. Then your blower will run for about 45 seconds. That is carrier's way of making sure that it, service people or the homeowner, if they had an issue or problem, they weren't turning it off, turning it back on, just to get the flames running and get to overheat the furnace heat exchanger. This way it allows the heat exchanger to cool down. And we know the blower run because the lady told you that it did that those are now timed on, not temperature on. That's why the blower took off. Uh, 45 seconds or so after the burner start, or supposed to start anyway, uh, the blower comes on. It's timed through the board. We have the venter motor. We know that works. The venter motor makes a pressure switch. The pressure switch should, should have uh, uh, power there. And then the next thing is maybe a flu switch, where you, if the flu damper is... Uh, flu is bypassed, you might have a temperature switch or something that turns that off. There's also rollout switches and there's a high limit switch. All of those things are there within the system on the front of the furnace in the vestibule where you can see them. 
So, and you had to, at some point in time, you should check the filter just to make sure that the filter is clean. Now, here you are, you got the controls, or you got all your controls and devices in front of you. There are only switches or operators. A thermostat is a switch, a limit is a switch, a pressure switch is actually a switch. Hmm. All of those are things that do not use electricity but pass the electricity through them as a switch. Then there is an operator. Well, what is an operator? An operator is the motor on the venter motor. You've got power going into it and you've got a ground coming out and the power does not just pass through it. The other part, the other operator in this whole system for our intents and purposes is going to be the gas valve. You have uh, power in and you have a common. Nothing else that you have there actually uses electricity. All the other things that are on there are just switches. As part of the control system, you may have relays depending on the brand and the type of equipment you're working on. So a relay is both an operator and a switch. The operator is the coil. With the wires disconnected from the relay coil, you should be able to read 9 to 11 ohms of resistance through that coil. The contacts are labeled normally opened or normally closed. Uh, normally means the control in your hand, not operating out of the package in your hand. If there is electric strip heating on any furnace that you might see, you may have coils that voltage might be 120 volts. If you do have that, then you need a 150 ohms of resistance. And if you have a 220 volt coil, which can happen on some electric strip heaters and things, then you're going to need a 500 ohms of resistance to that coil. Back to our 24 volt circuit. So now you got it connected to a common source. So if you put your meter, the other lead, on the white wire coming from the stat, you should read 24 volts. If you start going through the limit, you should read 24 volts on either side of the limit. If you only read 24 volts on one side and nothing on the other side, then you know that that limit switch is open. That goes for all of the little limit switches in there, the rollout switches and everything. So that's a pretty easy thing to check. The other thing is the pressure switch. Pressure switch is normally open. So if the furnace is off, the pressure switch will have no continuity through it and it will be open and will not allow the burner circuit to come on. Once the uh, venter motor starts, then that should take and you should be able to have 24 volts on both sides of the, of the pressure switch. Now from the pressure switch, you're going to the control board. So it's fairly easy to follow which red wire comes off of all of these controls and goes to the control board and right at that you should have 24 volts and if you don't some units have a fusible link set in there. Uh, I know that the comfort maker units of years ago had a fusible link between the high limit switch and the board and if that fusible link got too hot it was in the vestibule it would melt and turn the furnace off. So coming through the board is pretty hard to tell, but if you put your meter again, if you got 24 volts coming in from all your safeties, it goes into your circuit board and then, or to the gas valve. And then you go and take a reading on the gas valve, you should have 24 volts at the gas valve coming into it. If the gas valve doesn't open and you have 24 volts coming into it, you found your problem. Again, it's a process of elimination one thing at a time until you get to the point where you can find what is incorrect. 
Sometimes the trickiest one is the pressure switch. There may be three wire pressure switches out there. There may be multiple pressure switches out there because of the two staging that goes on in the variables. So you have to check all of the openings and the pressure switch, uh, you have to look at the manufacturer and they'll tell you what is a normally open side of it, what's normally closed. They may be like a relay because on some pressure switches it'll go through it to tell it, okay, start the... Uh, start something like the venter motor and then it waits for the second one to prove to start the ignition. Now that we're talking about pressure switches, we're also going to talk about the tubing that goes through them. Everybody here is probably uh, who's worked on these things, you've taken the tubing off, you, you can blow through it and suck through it, you can hear the pressure switch make. But we also know that the connection at the furnace where the tube goes in can be plugged. For the sake of argument, let's say that the pressure switch is your fault so you can pick up one you can pick up an adjustable one and uh, you can set it yourself I find that very hard to do I've tried it a couple of times and it was iffy if I got the correct results or not even though I had meters and other things to test it with so it's better to get the uh, OEM uh, kind that it's uh, you know it's going to work with that unit about the pilot in the pilot maker we have uh, some models today are direct spark which means it's direct spark to the burner for ignition. We have some uh, furnaces today that are uh, like the old Honeywell smart valves where you, uh, it has a glow to pilot to make or a spark to pilot to make the main ignition. And then we have our wonderful glow bars, uh, which have uh, were been around since the 70s. <laughs> they used to be really, really bad. I remember taking a couple of, take two or three of them to change them out at one time. But they, where did the glow bars come from? How come we have them on furnaces? And guys would go, well, I don't know, somebody invented that thing. Well, <clears throat> glow bars have been around for a very, very, very long time. Glow bars are what is used in a, a gas dryer. When you turn on a gas dryer, it's a glow bar that glows and then the, and then the burners make and they go through th tens of thousands of cycles and they had no problems with them. That's why they thought they would use them with furnaces. But like a lot of things that they did, when you start making 100,000, you say, hey, this is a really good product. Let's do this here or something similar. And everybody says, yeah, it's a good idea. Let's copy that. And then they start making these things by the hundreds of thousands of millions. There's an issue. And they had a lot of problems with them. The manufacturing part of it wasn't as good. They weren't very strong. You couldn't touch it with your hand. If you did that, the little bit of oil on your fingers would destroy it. They uh, were brittle. If you jarred the furnace too hard, you could break them. All of those problems that have been corrected. Carborundum is the company that made the pretty much first indestructible uh, uh, hot surface igniter. And people will say, well, they'll fail because... The uh, heat exchanger, uh, you know, you get particles of rust in that that'll fall on that igniter and that will make it go bad. And uh, the reality is, is that that's not really true with most heat exchangers today. They don't rust like that. I would say 90 to 95% of all the igniters I replaced, and there was a lot of them, uh, cracked. At one point in time, there was just a crack in them. And you can see that because if you look at the igniter, you'll see this little white spot that's here or there on it. And uh, it's cracked. Just to make sure, you take the little uh, snap clip apart there, the little clip that puts it together in the bottom of the igniter, and you put your ohm meter on 
the bottom of the igniter to two prongs, you should read between 40 and 90 ohms of resistance through that igniter. Any higher resistance than that, then you know that the, the igniter is defective because the higher ohms means that you have a crack or something else. And no ohms means that it's totally broken and you, there's nothing going through it. So now that you've made the pilot of the burn, one other thing has to happen for all the whole thing to keep going. And that is the flame has to be sensed. We have every furnace of these things has a flame sensor. Sometimes it's through one, the same thing that uses the spark. I've seen more of the sparker and the flame sensor are the same. Didn't like that. Most of them we all know is at the other end of the burner so that we make sure that every burner is lit off correctly. Now, those flame sensors are, and this is told to me by the manufacturers as I have uh, been to their classes, it's just a piece of steel, a high grade of steel, and it's wrapped in porcelain. We all notice that porcelain. That porcelain is so that it will not go to ground. A good ground on a new furnace is, is imperative. You must have a new ground or the electronics and everything else will not work. Uh, the flame sensor takes electricity, DC electricity, and goes through the flame and that's how it senses whether the flame is actually there or not. So you have electricity actually going through the flame. Uh, these new sensors are very good. Uh, they, that's why you're wired directly to the control now. They used to go to ground and then back to the control and they were having issues with um, grounding wasn't real good. So now the flame sensor came along and they go direct to the control and so we don't have that problem, that issue anymore. It's uh, pretty rare that the flame sensor itself is bad, but I have seen them. So there you are. There's a easiest way you can figure out and uh, find out what's wrong with a gas-fired 80%er. 90% is the same way. The only thing is he's got two pressure switches instead of one, usually. Especially uh, uh, two stages, so you got more pressure switches. But all of them are basically the same. There is no great difference in any way these, nobody has a furnace that when you turn on the thermostat, it turns on the gas valve. First thing that happens in that furnace, no matter if it's an 80 or a 90, the first thing that happens is the venter motor starts. If that venter motor isn't the first thing that starts and when you turn it on, then that's where your issue is. It's either the relay bringing the venter motor on or the venter motor itself. So, taking it with that, and we're going to go on real interestingly enough here onto something that I had on my last podcast where I was talking about how to make your house uh, cleaner and better. I did a lot of research here in the last few days. I've went on a dozens and dozens of uh, websites and everything else, and I've read every piece of paper because if you don't read everything, you're only getting half the story. And what I was looking at is the UV lights. There's a lot of questions on these UV lights and whether or not they work and this and that. Honeywell, for example, has one. And it says it'll reduce the nastiness about 50% in your house. And it has a five-year limited warranty. Duck Pure uh, has one, too. And it only has a one-year limited warranty, but it doesn't really tell you what percentage of stuff it takes out of the air or anything else. Atomic Filters has one that calls it Clean Comfort. And that one in there, that's kind of a joke too. I mean, a lot of these things, they don't give you, they'll talk about what UV light can do 
for these particles in the air and that type of thing because there's a lot of testing that has gone on. And UV light is not a new product. It's been out for a very, very long time. But uh, they'll just use, well, look at these tests show that this UV light will do this and do that and do this and do that. But the device, device that those UV lights are in are not actually tested for their operation in the way they work. Some of them are very iffy and say, hey, we have to turn this off and on. You have to have so much going through it or burn it out there. They have sensing circuits and everything else. Then I went to what I have told you before and on my previous podcast. I went to Second Wind. There are, you have your air in your house. Let's say you got, there are three different types of pollutants in your house. Dust, uh, off-gassing, biochemical type of thing, and biology, uh, bio, 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 bio thingies, nastinesses, uh, which means molds and allergies, uh, molds and pollen and uh, anything that's living, uh, viruses and germs and all of that happy stuff. Well, I uh, went back to Second Wind, and I'm flat out telling you this is a class two medical device and is the only UV light that I've been able to find and I've searched the internet up, down, and sideways and if anybody finds one, then fine, let me know about it. It's the only one that right on their website, it is printed with the FCC class two medical device number. And it's no joke. If you're going to buy one, buy one that actually works. And I'm taking back what I said about the other one the other day. I wasn't real sure about it. The one that goes out there and works with aluminum. Well, guess what? Second wind is not sitting on their ass. If you want the best, they got one that's called the Zephyr. That one does everything. It's got your ionizing. It's got your UV. It's got the whole nine yards. And here's the other part. And the reason why I say buy second wind. Five-year warranty? One-year warranty? Bulb has a two-year warranty or one-year warranty? How about a lifetime warranty on the power stuff? Two years is what a bulb life is on any of these units because they're basically the same bulb. But with second wind on either one, uh, any of their models, they have a lifetime power supply warranty. It's the only one I could find that was not a one-year or some of them are five-year, and uh, five years are usually limited, which means they don't want to uh, cover it. They're just going to tell you that, uh, oh, something else went wrong, and it's your fault, and they're not covering it. Okay, this is the geese signing off, just letting you know that uh, now you got the good information. Make good use of it. Be safe out there, and remember, Darge did it.